Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is James McRae. He is an author, artist, and the best meme maker you'll ever come across on the internet. We go into some of the problems facing art nowadays and how to be the best artist you can be with very actionable steps. I hope you love today's episode. Please leave a review if you can. It goes a long way for us and my team. Thank you so much, James. I'm going to begin with a quote by Bruce Lee that I think pertains to this conversation. The creative process is a process of surrender, not control. What does that mean to you? Absolutely. Bruce Lee was a wise man, (laughs) very quotable. Um, So I think that what Bruce means when he says that the creative process is one of surrender and not control is that there's a force in creativity that the artist or the writer or the creative harnesses. And it's a bit like tapping into a force beyond ourselves. It's almost like riding a, you know, trying to ride like a Bronco or something. And it's all about attuning our own consciousness to the voice of the muse. And to me, that requires a degree of surrender versus control because you're essentially surrendering your own ego mind for the service of whatever the muse is trying to tell you. So it's not about giving up control in terms of, you know, surrender. It's about surrendering the small ego mind in, in exchange for tapping into a higher consciousness and being of service to that consciousness and that idea. And for me, that's the first stage of creativity is just opening yourself up and making yourself a vessel for creative inspiration. Mm-hmm. So what, what is that muse you're talking about? What exactly is that? So the muse is an interesting concept. That is a word that originates from ancient Greece because ancient, the ancient Greeks had different personified gods for everything. That's just the way that they, you know, made sense of the world. So the, the, the muse was a goddess spirit that an artist or a poet could tap into. And the muse would come down and whisper ideas into the artist's ear, basically. And for me, that's a great metaphor for how creativity works. And there are other metaphors as well. I feel like there's a lot of frameworks or stories around where creativity comes from and where the um, voice of the muse comes from. If you're a religious person, you might consider yourself tapping into a a god or a deity of some sort. Um, If you're more of a scientific or psychological thinker, you could agree with Carl Jung when he talked about the collective consciousness. And there is this kind of collective unconscious that we can all tap into, which is a place of archetypes. Um, There are people, plenty of people that believe that they are channeling other dimensions. You know, there are people that think that they're channeling aliens or other other beings and and they're making themselves a channel from other dimensions and for me i believe that all of these things are all just metaphors for our own intuition so when you talk about the creative muse for me that's just a metaphor for opening up the portal of intuition 
so you can tap into ideas and insights that are beyond the reach of the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. My journey with the the muse was when I was 19, 20, I was dating this new, you know, beautiful, enticing woman. And suddenly I started getting inspired to work, to write, to create. And I was, back then I had no idea what any of this was. And I was like, what, what the hell is going on here? Why is this new relationship, this new woman making me inspired to act? And you go to the history of rock and it was pretty common for rock stars to have a muse with them. Mm. So I started writing, okay, is it some symbol she's representing in my consciousness? And the piece I came to, which I think you'll, which I'd love to you to branch off on is that by being with her and surrendering to her, like, pace of feminine energy of just mm. surrendering and being and laughing and enjoying life and escaping my own rigid forceful masculine side of things just yes. always be working and grinding tapping into her creative field just being and existing made me tap into that absolutely well so there's two main aspects of the creative process and that's the yin and the yang the feminine and the masculine because the masculine uh, the masculine is the active doer, right? The masculine energy is what is um, the force that acts in the world and that initiates action with force. And it's about making and doing. Whereas the feminine is more about being and being receptive and being a vessel and, you know, being in flow rather than force. So the masculine and the feminine both of those energies live inside of us all. Um, every male has feminine energy. Every female has masculine energy. Everyone has both. And I think that artists tend to be more, men or women, either way, artists tend to be more in touch with that feminine side because creativity requires us to be receptive to the voice of the muse and to listen to the universe for ideas and inspiration that we can then take and then build and create with that inspiration. So if you don't have that feminine yin receptive side to your creativity, you can be productive and work, 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 and you can, and you can produce a lot of things, but your work is going to not be coming from a place of deep purpose and intention because in our intuition is what aligns us with our higher calling and our purpose. So if we don't have that connection to the feminine energy, our work is going to be shallow. Whereas if we just stay in that feminine energy all day, um, we might be inspired. We might be, you know, just enjoying that place of receptivity, but we might, we might never finish our projects or get anything done because we're just, you know, staying in that feminine flow. So for me, creativity is an equal balance of the feminine and the masculine. How can we, what can we do if we notice ourselves being yin deficient? If you're someone who's highly masculine in the world who just can, first off, like how can we know if we are yin deficient and what we can, what can we do to restore that energy? Sure. Well, the first step I would say is to give yourself space to rest. You know, if you're not used to being in that feminine flow, you might have to extract yourself from your regular productivity and just give yourself a day to do nothing. Like it's not, that sounds easy. That sounds like a, like a day off, but when you're used to being in that work mode all the time, it can be really hard to give yourself a chance to just 
just rest, just dedicate a day to self-care. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is just actually block out times to do nothing, um, spending time in nature and just, you know, not even listening to music or a podcast or an audio book, but really just tuning our awareness into nature, because I think that creativity is an aspect of nature, you know, the same way that, you know, we are part of nature. Um, it's like, imagine that the universe is a, is a, is a tree that's growing. Every human is like a branch that's growing from that tree. And then the art that we create are like the leaves and the fruit that sprout from the branch. So it's a natural extension of nature and of the life force of creation. So it's just about aligning ourselves with nature and letting that flow through us. So um, spending time with nature, certainly meditation for me has always been a big part of my creative process. I meditate every morning before writing and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. It can be just 10 minutes sitting in a comfortable position with your eyes closed, focusing your awareness on your breath, each inhale and exhale just for 10 minutes. It's going to quiet down that busy ego mind and allow yourself to tap into that portal of intuition. Do you ever get creative blocks or a point in your mastery where it doesn't even happen? Well, I show up to work every day um, and that's to create. And for me that, you know, it is uh, it is a discipline. So I show up to create and that's up to, that's up to me. I can control that. What I create that day, I cannot control, you know? So I, I try to give myself like to make a baseball analogy. I try to give myself as many at bats as I can. Mm -hmm. So I just show up every morning and just try to tune into what's trying to come through me. And some, some days I might have five new memes that will come out or a full poem or a full book chapter. And there are other days where not much comes out. Maybe I'll spend a whole morning editing one page in a book, or maybe nothing will come out. And that's okay. You know, I don't, I don't try to measure myself. Some people try to have really strict word counts every day that they try to hit. I don't do that because for me, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. So I just show up and, and, and that's what I can control. And I don't beat myself up too much if it's a, a day where not much, if anything, comes out. Mm -hmm. When when you say things, you know, come through you, I've had the same experience, right? I'll be writing in flow state, and then I'll just kind of space out, I'll look back, and a quote or something will come through that I had no idea existed. Yeah. And then I go straight to, where did that come from? So where do you, how have you rationalized that? Where do those messages come from that you in that moment are like, I didn't think of this, this just happened from somewhere? It's a great question, because the truth is, no one really knows. It's like we have this expression that, oh, an idea popped into my head. And it's like, what does that mean? An idea popped into your head. How can an idea pop into your head? Where did it come from? And for me, it's a lot like uh, explaining the universe by saying there was a big bang. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what do you mean there was a big bang? Where, where did the big bang come from? Like what initiated the big bang? Like where was it before the big bang? So it's more of a, it's kind of like sweeping the real question under the rug and saying, we don't know. So I feel like we are 
live in a universe where we are always swimming in information. And the conscious mind and our own five senses can only tune into so much of that information and that data. But there are subtler forms of intelligence, like intuition, that allow us to tap into this sea of information that we're swimming in at all times without realizing it. Um, so for me, that's we don't access that information with our conscious mind. For me, it comes through as a feeling or as an emotion. Mm -hmm. So when I'm trying to summon the spirit of the muse, what I'm really doing is I'm trying not to think. I'm trying to feel. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to make my mind a still sanctuary where the muse feels safe to visit. So ideas for me, and I've tried to like trace back the creative process to see where these ideas come from. And I've noticed that it often comes through as a feeling. So I'll get, I'll just tune into my feelings, my body, my emotions. And I'm like, how am I feeling right now? And then just sit with the feeling. Don't jump into trying to have the idea quite yet. Mm -hmm. You know, give yourself space and have patience to let it develop. So I just sit with my feeling. I sit with my energy. I'm like, what is the universe trying to tell me? And I just try to not think for, look for the answer with my mind, but look for the answer with my, my energy. And then eventually you sit there long enough and you might just get like a spark of insight. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense of something. And then you kind of start to interpret that spark of insight. And then it, the, the idea gradually becomes more and more clear. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's just about opening up that portal so we can tap into the information that's all around us at all times. Yeah, you mentioned that a prime task for one is to create a safe space for the muse to then access that uh, channeling or inspiration or words coming through. What makes the muse unsafe or put differently, what makes, what blocks information coming through? So we as humans tend to rely on our logical analytical mind so much and i think that that is not the that is not the same language that the universe speaks that is a very human thing to be like you know our minds and our egos are awesome they're they help us navigate the world that we live in they help us um know our role in society you know the ego is a very important part of our psychological design i love that you say that just side note i love that it, you're saying that for yeah. sure for sure but and the ego is important for creativity as well. Um, but for me, it's more towards the end of the process. So when you're in the stage of editing, for example, the ego is great because the ego is hyper alert and it's looking for problems. So when you're editing your work, like the ego is a great ally, um, but it's not a great tool for listening to the voice of the muse because she's speaking a different language. Um, so I think there's, there's a block in finding the muse when we're overly reliant on the analytical, logical mind, because that's not the voice that she speaks. So it's just about listening and learning her language. What's the language? Feeling. It's, 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 a, it's the subtle language of felt sensation that we can tap into with our bodies and our emotions. And we sit with those feelings and emotions long enough, 
and there will eventually be a spark of insight. Mm-hmm. And that spark of insight is the beginning of the idea developing. Mm-hmm. And then we sit with that long enough and then it becomes more fully formed. Mm-hmm. On the line of emotions, do you ever perceive art or creativity as a therapeutic outlet to deal with your emotions? So what I, I've often come across this idea, or I've said it on my podcast before, that often you can use, you know, anxiety, depression, sadness, grief. Yeah. You can either let it to like rot in your insides internally, or you can have like kind of hours pointing out to you and, and release it through artistic expression. Art is absolutely therapeutic. And I believe that creativity is a healing modality unto itself. Because I think of it like we live, we go through our lives and we all experience our little traumas, whether they're major or minor. And it's like if you have a, a negative emotion or pain in your body and you try to suppress it, eventually that suppressed pain and emotion will start to decay in your body and turn into either emotional sickness or even physical sickness. So there are all kinds of healing modalities to cleanse ourselves of those stuck emotions and pains. You know, you can go into a sweat lodge or a sauna and sweat it out. Um, you can go into the to Peru and drink ayahuasca and purge that way. But I feel like creativity is also a way of purging emotions and energy and pain from the system because it's a way of looking within and finding what's there and then bringing it into the light of the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very therapeutic just to, you know, just to write down things in your notebook, just to purge that subconscious mind and get it, get it out onto the page. It doesn't matter if it's, it's good. I, I think we often equate creativity too much with this capitalistic mindset of it's a competition. I'm trying to be the best creator. I'm trying to be the best writer. And there's a place for that, you know, if you're trying to sell books or whatever. But I think that creativity is useful in anyone's life, whether they're a professional or not. So I think it's very therapeutic just to get something out onto the page. And it's even more therapeutic to share your work in public, even with a friend or at an open mic night. I host uh, an event called Sunflower Club, which is all about creativity as a healing modality. And it's about sharing your work in public in front of a supportive community. And whether that's a poem or a story or a dance or a joke, any mode of creativity is welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I can just see the transformation that people have when they maybe have never shared their creativity in public before. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can almost just see the light in their eyes um, and how therapeutic it is to get it out of their system and have it be received by supportive people. It it, it goes a long way. Beyond the journaling you mentioned, let's, I'm always thinking of people who are just starting out now. Let's say someone's dealing with anxiety, intensity, or or sadness, just lost someone beyond the, you know, journaling. What can, what can they do in the sense of like, if they're in a moment thinking, what art can I create? What can I actually do to get this thing out there? What would you say to someone like that? Like, what can they start doing to figure out what their niche is and how to actually release that on paper? Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of trying all kinds of different modalities. You know, um, I think that some people are more visual thinkers and, and drawing might be useful to them. Um, 
maybe writing poetry. Um, also, I think consuming art is so important. You know, if you're, if you're not sure the kind of art that you most resonate with, I think we learn a lot from the art that we consume, you know, and I think that's a, that's a big part of my own creative practice. And this is, goes back to that yin energy of, of being receptive to and tuning into the sea of information that's all around us is going to art galleries going to concerts, um, going to open mic nights and just sampling all the different options that are available to us and trying them all. And, you know, um, sticking with the ones that work best for you. In terms of, um, the inspiration you mentioned, I've noticed, I just mentioned your book and I wanted to hear you articulate this, that Mm -hmm. I'm not a visual artist. I'm more of a, a writer, a podcaster in that domain, but I'll watch uh, a new director, like an A24 movie, something beautiful like that. And just watching that different artistic expression will make me inspired to create my own writing. How does that work? Why, why does that happen? How can that like deep disparity occur? Yeah. I mean, same with me. You know, I love, I love music so much. I listen to music all the time and I cannot make any music of my own and I never could, but that's my favorite you know, I rather I write poetry, but I don't make music. But I would much rather listen to music than read poetry, because I think that creativity and anything we learn, skills are transferable. In other words, you can take inspiration from one area of your life and apply it to another area of your life. Even like I've been an artist my whole life, and I've been a writer and a designer and a poet and spoken word artist, podcaster. And for me, it's been a journey to learn how to, how to apply creativity to business. And it's like, I can look back at my career, like back when I was a graphic designer and, um, you know, I had learned, I, I had been taught this creativity of graphic design, but I, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I'm like, well, but I, I understood creative thinking and creative thinking can be, you can learn creative thinking from one discipline and then you can apply it somewhere else. So I learned, okay, how can I apply creative thinking to my own career or to building my own business? So the create, the skill of creativity is transferable just because you're used to maybe let's say you're a great drawer or you are a, you love to write poetry but you don't know what else to do with your life. Well, to be honest, it's hard to make money writing poetry, but you can look at the same process that allowed you to be good at poetry and apply that same process to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what was the magic that you unlocked that you learned while you were writing? How can you apply that to business? So for me, creativity is less about the specific art you make it's about being an independent thinker. It's kind of claiming sovereignty of your own consciousness mm-hmm. and not just accepting the rules that are bestowed upon us by society, but actually looking with a critical eye and trying to problem solve no matter what it is you're working on. For me, that's the essence of creativity. It's not about making art per se. It's about being a creative thinker. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm, I agree with this point. It's coming to my mind that at what point is it a cost to your soul 
to only apply creative genius to capitalistic outlets to make money. Like, for example, as you said, like, let's say you're an artist or a writer mm-hmm. or you're a poet, poet, but it's not going well and you end up creating for an agency to do something for someone else. At what point is you just channeling that creativity to something you don't love or into? At what point does that cost your soul? And how can you counteract that? Is it a matter of like you get home and do your own thing? Like how can people in the system get the best of that? Sure. Well, I faced that many times in my own life. You know, I was uh, I was an, an artist and a writer, and you know, I ended up getting sucked into the advertising agency. You know, first as a graphic designer and then as a brand strategist. So I worked as a brand strategist on Madison Avenue in New York city for 10 years, you know, which is very, it's, it's like a, I compared it to being in a, it's an, it's like a creative, um, fire truck, meaning you're, you're just like trying to put out um, fires all day. And it's like an emergency kind of mindset. And it's like short deadlines for everything. And it's kind of like productivity on overload. And it's, it's like creativity that's stuck in that loop of masculine productivity where we didn't really have time to mm-hmm. go into that inspiration and intuition to make sure our ideas were more rooted in, in a higher purpose. Right. Um, so for me, that did take a toll on me. You know, I was, I was making a lot of money. I was being productive. Um, but inside I was miserable and I remember I had written poetry as a kid a lot and I hadn't written any poetry in years. And I remember a moment where it was almost like a rock bottom in, in my career. Um, again, not from the success point of view, because I look successful from the outside, but inside I was so miserable and I just knew I couldn't do this anymore. And I remember one morning a poem started coming out of me. It was the first poem I had written in years. And it's funny because what allowed me to write that poem, it was similar to what Bruce Lee said in that quote that you shared was, it was an act of surrender. It was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm just pushing and pushing and pushing. And I remember it was just a weekend morning and I was just, I felt like giving up. I felt like I can't, I can't keep pushing. And that's when I surrendered in in this moment of grace, I started writing poetry again. And once I wrote one, I wrote another and another and pretty soon the floodgates of my creativity began to open again. And then a lot of those poems that I I wrote ended up being published in my second book, which was a book of poetry. Um, So I really needed to balance that out with um, some of my own creative writing. And for me, I did that enough and I started to develop my own body of work and build an audience and, that eventually allowed me to leave the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. From where you are now, as a very successful in your endeavor and what you do, looking back, how important was the come up for you? How important was the mastery process in your artistry? I think nowadays one of the issues we face is that with the new social media generation or TikTok or things like that, people are um, automatically expecting to go viral and immediately become something like like that without actually mastering a craft or getting access to their own deeper insight on intuition. So how important was that process for you in developing your own mastery? And how much do you think that's essential for artists coming up? Because I think people my age are just not thinking about that. Think about how can I go viral as soon as possible, matching their, their art to, to fit an algorithm to advance themselves. Sure. Well, it was very important for me to have that 
that long and slow come up. And I, I think about people trying to go viral on TikTok. It's like, if you're chasing that quick hit of virality, that's short-lived. You might go viral. You know, a lot of people go viral every day. And if there's no substance behind it, they're going to be forgotten just as quickly, you know? Um, so I would rather direct my energy towards a sustainable creative path where I can create things that have longer longevity. And you can't do that by chasing trends, right? Because trends come and go, especially on TikTok. You know, what's popular this week might not be popular next week. So if you're always chasing that, you might get little spikes of popularity. Um, but is it helping you to grow a sustainable creative life and career? Because when I think of creative mastery, there, there are certain stages and levels to, to go through. And so imagine that creative mastery is a ladder. On the bottom, you have what I call unconscious incompetence. In other words, you don't know what you're doing and you don't know that you don't know what you're doing. This is like beginner's mind. You're just starting off fresh and you don't really know the rules yet. You don't really know your own style. But you play around long enough and you'll reach conscious incompetence, which means you understand that you have room to improve. You might understand like, oh, I see, like I'm actually not very good, but I can get better because you know that you're missing some, some tools. This is where you're learning. Next is conscious competence. So you practice enough where you actually learn how to write a certain way or how to paint a certain way or how to create TikToks a certain way. And that's a state of growth where you're, con you're consciously developing your skills. But at the top of the pyramid is unconscious competence. And this is flow state. This is where mm -hmm. it just comes through automatically in flow. So it's kind of like a dancer. When you are learning a dance, you need to be very conscious of each move. You need to memorize them. It, it takes, you know, a lot of diligent attention, but you practice it long enough. And then your body starts to memorize each move. And then you can do it unconsciously. It just flows through because when you're dancing, you don't have time to think about each move in advance. You know, you just have to have to go. So that's when it becomes unconscious and in flow because you've internalized each step. For me, that's the same for any form of creativity. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. And my mind goes to now is when I was, I would say the most proud of myself as an artist I was, was when I was just focusing on art. When I had no, I didn't have social media, I had no attachment to the outcome. I was just writing every day for two years with no attachment to the outcome. Then I shifted to social media mm -hmm. and I started attaching the outcome mostly. I started looking at the result of the writing, how many hits, how many likes, and my artistry sure. gone. It, sure. it was gone. I didn't have the, the same connection. And I actually ended, and I sort of ended up making things for an algorithm. I made yeah. things for that because, it, you know, if your goal is influencer in, in a space, to grow, you have to match what the algorithm wants, which destroys artistry. So what, what do you say to that, to people in, in a similar headspace where like they have a core of an artist and they really want to engage that endeavor, but at the same time, they have, they're, they're trying to, to, to match their art as an algorithm and also 
they're, they're allowing the attachment to the outcome of the art dictate the course of the art. Sure. What do you say to people like that? Like me? <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, I think that creating art for social media is a beautiful thing. Social media is an entirely new platform for creative expression that we're still understanding. I love the fact that anyone can post something. I'm, I, I, I I could have an idea right now that just popped into my head, share it on social media, and then who knows, maybe tens of thousands of people are going to see it very quickly. That is a new form of communication with an audience that has never existed before in human history. So I think it's a very powerful platform to explore, you know, what is, what is, art look like in the age of social media. And I think memes are one example of that, mm. where you can really um, create specifically for social media. It's not, it's not like you're doing a painting and then you happen to share the painting on social media. You're making art tailored for the medium of social media. So I think that in and of itself is a beautiful thing. And it's a, it's a way to engage with a community in real time and to get real-time feedback from your work. So I think that's, uh, that's a powerful relationship to develop. But getting caught up in the ad addictive nature of chasing metrics is the wrong way to go. And it's going to take a toll on your mental health. Because at the end of the day, these are algorithms that we have no control over. And we can't put, we can't invest our self-esteem in an algorithm and, and chase after metrics. So I love to create and share on social media, but I always say, focus on your message, not your metrics. Your metrics will grow in proportion to the clarity of your message. So I just try to treat my Instagram as my public art gallery, you know, and, and I'm just trying to curate the best gallery that I can and, it motivates me knowing that there are followers there that are checking their own Instagram account. It motivates me to create and to, um, and to put out a message that I think might be helpful to some people. Um, but I try not to be too attached to the outcome or the numbers um, because people forget, you know, even if you get, let's just say like a hundred people liked your picture or whatever, people forget that a hundred people is a lot of people. You know, if, if we had a hundred people in this room with us right now, that would be overwhelming, right? So don't get too caught up in the game of comparison. And this is for life in general. It's such a buzzkill. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, a, there's a quote that's comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy because no matter how big you are, no matter how popular, popular you are, there's always going to be someone bigger. There's always going to be someone more popular. So the game of comparison never ends. You never win the game. So focus on what you do. Focus on your own message. Focus on the people that you are called to serve with your work and just try to deliver something beautiful or something helpful to the people that, that need it. Don't worry about what, what anyone else is doing. What you're hinting to is deriving validation from the quality of the meaning versus I think what I do yeah. and many people, it's a common trauma in this capitalist system. We grew up that way. We base our, our self-worth off of performance, right? right. You, daddy loves you. Mommy loves you. Nay, you know, teacher loves you. 
uh, coach loves you if you score 30 points in the basketball game. That was me. And um, that for me, it shifted to this stuff now. It's like I'm worthy of affection and validation if I get the thousand likes. If something goes viral, my ego starts chasing that as a means of validation. Right. But the soul's validation lies in the beauty of the messaging. So you're saying is for people who are creating just to, if they're proud of the messaging and they feel it's aligned with themselves, that's the metric of, of self-worth and validation, not the, the number attached to it. Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. And like, how many things get 100,000 likes that it's not, it might just, it might be a trite cliche. You know what I'm saying? So it's not, it's not even how many likes something gets is not even a, a good metric of whether or not it's good because maybe just the algorithm you know did that person a favor that day or you know that's a person who is a hot is hot right and then they 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 shared something that's like maybe a, a trite kind of insight cliche and then people are like oh that hot person shared that that's cool and they're gonna like it but maybe they'll see that i liked it maybe they'll like me back you know what i'm saying so there are so many reasons why things get um, engagement online. And um, I just wouldn't recommend putting too much weight on, on those metrics. Like, do you feel personally fulfilled in your creativity, in what you make? Is there a niche audience that you're speaking to um, that you can either inspire or help in some way with your art and your words? And I always, I believe in, um, intending to your own garden meaning if whoever shows up for this message i'm just going to nurture that audience and give them what they need and and just cultivate my own garden as opposed to trying to take over the the land um, beyond my own garden yeah you know i think a, a quality artist has to be very willing to fail massively yeah i've noticed that right i've seen I know you saw that show, the the Idol on HBO. It's like new. I never saw it, but yeah, but I know it. For me, I I respected it because I was like, this failed so damn hard. It was so excruciatingly bad to me. That sounds insane, but I was like, I love that. I love that they took a risk this fucking big and it it failed massively. I, I love experimentation. I love doing things that are different. There is a um, there there there's a new album by the rapper uh little yachty and it's the rock one it's called it's got an ai album cover <laughs> it's an al- i think it's called like we'll start here or something like that i know you put out the song sound like pink floyd that was like this is incredible that's what i'm yeah, saying yeah. i was listening to this and i'm like i had the same reaction i'm like this <laughs> is little yachty because yeah. he was like a mumble rapper yeah. and then he now he sounds like pink floyd yeah. and it was so weird. And I'm like, I was just so grateful to hear something that sounded nothing like anything on radio or what any other rapper is trying to sound like. And I've been listening to that album nonstop for a week. And it, there's no pop um, hits on it. There's no mm-hmm. hit, you know hit singles, but it's um, he's, he's going on a journey and he's taking you with him. And uh, that's my favorite art. That's my favorite music is when people are will are willing to take risks and 
do things that might fail. But I don't believe in failure in art because I think that um, failure is just a portal to discovery. You know, the jazz um, musician Miles Davis said, do not fear mistakes. There are none. And he said that, you know, you can't, when you're playing the trumpet, you can't play the, you can't play a wrong note because it all, it all depends on the note that you play next. In other words, if you make a mistake, if you play it, another note that goes in a new direction, you didn't make a mistake. You just found a new area to explore in. So for me, I don't believe in creative mistakes. I like creative experimentation. I like taking risks and I like doing things that only I could do or only that person could do that because yeah. it's, it's such a unique expression of them and it doesn't have to be the most popular song in the world, but it's adding something original and unique to the conversation. And that always inspires me. And that makes me want to, you know, push my work in interesting directions when I see other people doing it with their own art. Yeah. When I, when I view art, I think the potential, the capacity of a potential for an amazing art piece is reflective of how much you think it'll fail yeah. in my mind. The, the just I see it that way. What, what I'm asking, saying that is that if you have that vision, if you see that vision, you see this could fail so fucking big, but that means it probably has a capacity to succeed even more. What can you do to actually, you know, put aside the failure in your mind and just say, you know what, I'm doing this, fuck it. Well, first of all, you can't, you cannot care what other people think. Like, and I, and I do this in my own um, social media, you know, sometimes I'll just post something that I, I don't want to say I know it's bad, but I know it's not what my audience is going to respond to. But I try to put out enough variety of things just to retain my own permission to do so. Meaning like, I'm not going to put myself into a box. Because once you put yourself into a box, it's really hard to get out of it. So just to keep myself honest, I'll post something that's cringe or super esoteric. Mm -hmm. Or something that's not the polished quote that would maybe typically get the most engagement. I just try to keep it a little bit loose. So I'm not living up to anyone's expectations other than my own. It's like, and I love the idea of your faith has to be greater than your fear. Self-doubt kills more dreams than failure. So if you're going to be on a creative path, don't let the fear of failure stop you. The only thing to be worried about is your own self-doubt and to avoid that and, and, and to have the courage to pursue your own visions, um, even if it's not traditional and not what other people are doing. Um, and for me, I just take inspiration in other artists that are just doing different work that's 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 marching to the beat of their own drummer and i think that's the only way you can truly create something original and exciting it may this may sound morbid but i often think of my deathbed as a motivator mm. and why i say that is that where my mind goes to is that even if i fail i'd be okay with my life if i tried the, to the highest extent as long as i gave it my all and tried the most i could I can die happily. Even if I failed over and over again, if I gave it my all and truly tried, I'd die happily. I, I learned this as an athlete in, in playing basketball, you know, in high school, that even if I lost a game, if I gave my all, it's okay. But if, if I would 
if I was slacking on defense, my hands weren't up, I was, you know, taking lazy shots, I wouldn't feel good. That's all you can do. You can only control what you can do. And I, I try not to worry about what I cannot control. So I control where I put my energy and showing up every day to do that. I can't always control the outcome. I can, you know, basketball is a team sport and so is life. So you can't always control the outcome, but you can sh- control the energy that you put into it mm-hmm. for sure. What's the biggest creative risk you ever taken? The biggest creative risk I've ever taken. You know, I've always been a taker of risks in my in my life and my career. Um, meaning, I think it's important to always reinvent yourself because life is long and. We don't live in the world anymore where you can go to college, get a degree in something, get a job in that degree, and then have a stable career for the next 40 years. That's not the way the world works anymore. That's not the way the economy works. The world is full of uncertainty these days. The economy is full of uncertainty. And I believe that creativity helps us navigate uncertainty because the creative process is a journey into the unknown. You know, you you don't know what ideas you're going to find. You don't know how you're going to execute those ideas. So it's about being present in the moment and finding your way one step at a time and being open for new directions when they appear. So I think that creativity helps us navigate a world of increasing uncertainty. So I've changed careers like that before because it didn't feel in alignment with me anymore. You know, when I went from being a graphic designer to being a brand strategist, a lot of people told me it was a bad idea because I had never been a brand strategist. I didn't know what that job even entailed. So people advised me against it, but I knew I needed to do it. So making a pivot like that, you know, or moving to New York City without a plan because I, I knew I needed to have a bigger swimming pool to swim in. You know what I mean? Or um, when I was uh, a published Hay House author, and w- which is like a self-help kind of publisher. And then I decided to stop doing motivational um, content and started making memes about the existential crisis of the universe, you know? So I taking risks can mean a lot of different things, but as long as it's aligned with your own soul, where you're like, this is something I have to do. And I'm going to feel like I'm repressing myself. If I don't do this, you always have to do it. Even if you can't see where it's going to lead you yet, you owe it to yourself and to your own purpose on earth Mm -hmm. to follow through on where you feel that magnetic pull and wherever it's taking you yeah i was about to ask what makes you so able to change things on a dime but you answered it there in the sense that you're so in tune with your emotions and your spirit that you can sense that what the, you can sense somatically the cost of not following what you're meant to do yeah. you can feel the universe's uh repentance or or uh, anger at you towards not shifting and the opposite point is that is that you know, most people in America, the, the standard American way of being is you get a job. Let's say you're an accountant. No, no hate to accountants. You go to college, you're an accountant. You're an accountant. 
you say, you wait till you retire, retire, it, that's your life. Mm-hmm. And most people just pick a job, they stay in it, and then they just retire. So for them, would you argue that the, that the way for them to find them, themselves is to just pay somatic attention to whether they really feel in their body, mind, and spirit as to if this is the highest alignment, in the highest alignment? Yeah. And, and some people can be accountants and be happy with that. So yeah. it's not like if you have a more stable, boring career that you need to get out of it because you can be creative in your own home life. You know, you can, you can, you know, raise kids in a way that is inspirational, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can have, you can host dinner parties that bring together community in a, in a creative way. You know, there's all kinds of ways to be creative. So um, I wouldn't advise anyone just to, you know, quit their jobs unless they really feel that they have to. Okay. Um, and I've always been, my favorite artists are the ones that have changed on a dime. You know, this is, uh, I have this little lightning bolt tattoo and that's, uh, that's a David Bowie reference. Um, he has an album cover where he's got a lightning bolt over his face and David Bowie is a great example of how, you know, if you, if you just stick, if you're a musician and you stick to one sound and you just try to replicate that sound again and again and again, that's like chasing the viral TikTok uh, moment where it's like, oh, that worked before. So I'm going to engineer this algorithm to hit again. And I'm just going to duplicate the formula that worked last time. And you might get a couple extra hits that you can squeeze out by doing that. But before you, before you know it, there's going to be diminishing returns and you're going to be irrelevant. So I learned from people like David Bowie who would master a whole sound. Like he created an album called Ziggy Stardust in 72, I think. And he was this alien rock star and he had a whole persona and costume and it was this concept album and people loved it. And he got world famous on it. But after that album and after that tour, he retired the character and never performed as Ziggy Stardust again. He invented a new character and every few years he would invent a whole new sound and his audience would maybe change. Maybe some people wouldn't follow him to the next stage of his career, but then he'd find new fans and some of them would grow with him because the audience is changing too. The audience is growing too. So they like to see change reflected in the art that they're, that they're consuming. So I, I, I always learned how important it was both for longevity, but also just for your own inner satisfaction to love what you're doing and to be excited about what you're doing. I like the idea of beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is essentially, it's a, it's a concept from Zen Buddhism and in the mind of an expert, there are very few possibilities because they think they know the, how everything works. So they're just going to stick to that same formula. But in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities because they're not weighed down by old ways of doing things. So I like the idea of trying to live with a beginner's mind and to always stay fresh and inspired and to find new territory to play in so you can renew your own inspiration instead of, you know, thinking you have everything figured out and just, just turning the wheels. So another topic I wanted to hit in the topic of art, artists is the capacity for artists to inflict social change. 
Um, and you had an example in your in your book of uh, you argued that artists are basically the canaries in coal mines of society. So why do you think that is, and how does that work? So I think that the way change happens in society is is gradual, and before you can build something new, like a new um, supply chain, for example, you need to have a, a plan. And before you can have a plan, you need to have a dream. So I think that imagination is the first step of all change and transformation. And I think that the role of artists, and again, I use the term artist loosely. It's like the, the role of creative thinking, the role of imagination, what that could be in business or in science. You know, Einstein was a dreamer. People don't know this. Einstein was not good at math and all the equations based on his formulas. Einstein didn't even do those equations. He had the concept. He had the idea. He had the dream and the vision. And then other people helped prove them true with the, the math and the equations. So people don't even know Einstein was a, was a dreamer and a very much like a, a right brain thinker. So I think that all social change begins in the imagination and and it's the artist's role to be those image setters to plant the seeds in the collective consciousness that can be actualized so i think that i love thinking about memes right and and because what a meme is you know we think of memes as being like a, a piece of content on social media um but the true meaning of the word meme is a viral idea so any idea that takes root in the collective consciousness and spreads, um, that's the definition of what a meme is. So I'm a big believer in the role of artists and of visionaries and of dreamers is to plant memes into the force field of the universe and see what takes root and spreads and and there there are examples like, you know, in the Renaissance, um, in the, you know, the late 1400s in Italy, you know, this was coming out of the dark ages and it was the artists and the philosophers and the thinkers who looked back to ancient Greece to find principles that, that they could bring to life in their own era. And that sparked a Renaissance of culture and science and mathematics uh, throughout Europe, and it was the artists and the dreamers who planted those seeds in the in the in the culture. What's the process like if you, let's say, you feel a certain way about a cultural issue, um, whether it be you know gender stuff, race stuff, or mm -hmm. political things? How can someone with that passion, that burning passion, to create change? What can they do to figure out? Okay, what art can I create from this that will? help shift the messaging of the populace. Because I think so many of us nowadays, especially youth and all of us, we live in the most heightened emotional era, I yeah. think, in one of the most heightened in human history. And we all have, each of us have these incredibly divisive opinions on any issue. What can we do to channel that into art to create the change we want to see? So I have an exercise that I call plant a vision. And what I, what I would recommend avoiding is fighting against what you don't want. Okay. What do you mean? It's about planting a vision for the world you want to see 
not fighting against the world you don't want to see. Okay. So like Buckminster Fuller, this visionary architect had a great quote like that, where it was like, um, you don't, you don't change the world basically by destroying the old world. You create a new model that makes the old model obsolete. So I believe in, there's so much conflict on social media and how people engage with each other. And the whole world seems to be playing this, um, this game of argumentative absolutes. Mm -hmm. It's like, I believe this and I believe this, and we're just going to be on this, you know, engage in conflict because we're our, we're united only by our shared outrage and confusion. But I would rather use my words and use my art to plant seeds for the world I want to see. So what I try to do Mm -hmm. is, What does that look like? What is the world that you want to see? You know, just imagine it. Let that vision live in your own head. Just picture it. Just sit there and the listeners to this podcast, give yourself a few minutes just to truly imagine the world that you want to see. It has to exist in the mind and in the imagination before it can exist in reality. So let it exist in your own mind. Picture it. What does it look like? How do people relate to each other? You know, how does, um, how does the ideal economy work? You know, what is a fair and balanced society that's connected to nature with an integrated masculine and feminine, you know, at, at peace with each other and connected to our own hearts? Let that vision live in your mind, sit with it, and then express it. You know, write, write a story about what this world looks like. Um, write a poem about this world, you know, um, create some social media content about it and you're just planting seeds, right? You're, it's not your job as an artist and as a creator to make this world come true. This requires all of us. Again, it's about controlling what you can control and you can control where you direct your own consciousness. So I believe in being a living embodiment of the world you want to see be the meme that you want to go viral in the world. Be the glitch that you want to see in the matrix. Mm-hmm. What is the world you want to see and how is your art reflecting that? So I believe, so, okay. I believe that, I believe that humanity has been cut off of our, from our own nature and our own spirit. And I believe that we are living in a society that Terrence McKenna called it the ego dominator society, which is kind of a top down hierarchy. And there are a lot of theories that the origin of this ego dominator society was around 10,000 years ago with the invention of agriculture, where humans went from being hunter gatherers to being farmers. And this was a big change in human history. And on the surface, it's a pretty good change, right? We could, when you're farming, it's a lot more, you can scale it. Um, you know, you can feed more people that way. But for the first time in human history, people could own land and they could hoard resources. And there started to be a disconnection between the haves and the have-nots. And you fast forward that 10,000 years 
and you have what we see today, which is the vast majority of the world's wealth in the hands of, of a few. So Terrence McKenna, one of my favorite philosophers, um, he believed that in order to solve the problem of the ego-dominator society, we had to look back throughout history to prior to the invention of agriculture to learn the principles and the wisdom that we have forgotten, which is essentially our own ancestral knowledge and ways of living. So I believe the world that I want to see, because I, I, I also, um, I think there's a lot of value in much of the progress we've made as a society, you know, from a technological perspective. So I believe in integrating our technological um, society with some of the ancient principles that we have forgotten, such as living in close communities and having a strong connection with nature and worshiping the goddess on the same level as the god, right? Integrating the masculine and the feminine um, and applying that concept of community and interdependence back in our lives. Um, so I call this the new renaissance, which is, which is, it's, it's, a it's an integration of the ancient past and the technological future and fusing them together, um, in a way that can open new doors for us to, to step into for a more sustainable future. Um, so I believe in using technology, whether that's social media, um, and infusing it with wisdom, with higher consciousness, and um, and just planting seeds um, to restore that balance to the world. Mm -hmm. It's amazing here you say that. That's the intention behind my name, uh, the New Age Age. Just that exact combination, right? Because it's um, New Age and the yeah. It's like it's like you know we we live yeah. in these polarities, right? Because I, I come from. Why I'm more spiritual and into ancient healing and stuff like that is I, the Western world almost killed me. Right? I was put on all these psychiatric medications, no good, bad, bad news. I, I, and I became biased and distasteful towards the medical system and the new medicine ways of being. So I went super strict into shamanism, all that kind of stuff. And I realized that that extreme was its own thing, right? All the psychedelics have their own issue, in my, in my opinion. So now I was like, the, the keys in this this duality, right? We're here for a reason that we can combine this new rapid A technology with ancient ways to create this this um, new way of of being. On on that point, how can we how can we actually use social media or use these technologies to be more holistic in a way? If that makes sense, like what behaviors on social media are we doing that we shouldn't be doing? You know what I'm saying? Like how can we behave with social media in a way to not let it have the negative side take over us? So I don't think it has anything to do with social media because I think that social media is just a reflection of, of our own consciousness. Okay. Social media can be our best friend and it can be our worst enemy. It's like fire. You know, you can use fire to cook a meal. You can use fire to burn a house down. And if you're, if you're showing up to social media from a place of inner turmoil and just reactionary thinking you know, that's going to play out in how you, and how you use the platform. You know, it's going to, you're going to lash out at people. You're going to, you're going to get engaged in all kinds of back and forth in the comments. You're going to post things that are complaining. 
about the state of the world, maybe, or about the political party that you hate the most. And you're just going to use it to amplify your own discontent, right? Social media can do that. But if you are a regular meditator, you have a healthy diet, you get exercise, you have love in your life, even if that means one person or your family or a few close friends, and you are dedicated to nurturing your own consciousness and nurturing your own life and giving yourself the care that you need, and you are showing up every day to be a a living example of the world that you want to see, and you engage people and speak with intention and purpose, you can apply that to social media too. And then you can be a force of good. It's like, what is the, what is the message that you want amplified in the world? And if, if, if you're, if you're not sharing that on social media, then you're using it wrong because then you're sharing things that are unconscious. You're just blindly reacting as opposed to acting with intention. So I think that it starts with within and how we show up in the world and then bringing that version of ourselves to to social media. And if we all do that, it's going to be a much more peaceful place. Mm -hmm. Then what you're saying is this, I often think that um, my core life mission is to be authentic. That's yeah. what I kind of believe that we have it twisted in society that, you know, we think that it, once you, that the goal, the North star should be fame, money, uh, a beautiful wife or husband, the Lamborghini. But to me, it's, it's learned to become that the more you become authentic, that road will bring you those things if, if you want. And then presenting that version to social media and your experience, cause I'm just feeling your energy and being with you. I sense is pure authenticity. I'm, I'm assuming that's been hard work getting, getting there. How has that affected your success and your ability to be a successful artist? The more you, you become your authentic self, like how has that aided your success? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I mean, that's, that's, that's everything, you know, because if it's not authentic, you're just going to be, you're just going to be, imitating you know and if you're imitating it's going to be shallow right because you can be yourself better than you can be anyone else so you can imitate you know there are a lot of songwriters that imitated bob dylan none of them were bob dylan right to be a great songwriter you need to not imitate the best person doing it you need to look within yourself to see well what do i have to add to this conversation and you need to, need to develop your own skill. And it's authenticity is part of it, but you also need to be dedicated to your craft. Because if you can be authentic, but if you never really learn how to speak right or write in a way that's compelling or you know host a podcast in a way that is interesting, you're authentic, yes, but is is it landing with people? So I think authenticity is very important. And I think dedication to your craft is equally important. I think those are the two biggest cheat codes, being authentic, being true to who you are, not faking it, but also having the dedication and the commitment to keep showing up, keep developing your craft. So you can get into that state of unconscious competence or your inflow state. So your, so your authenticity 
can best shine through. Yeah, I feel like the dedication to the craft creates the authenticity. Why, why I'm saying that is that, you know, when you first start doing something, whether it be a writer, a podcasting, artist, actor, that you're filled with so much doubt, so much fear. Mm. And that's that's the blockage towards you becoming your, your highest self, right? So like the the diving into an artistic endeavor yeah. expression, through that process, you learn to, to peel away the fear and the doubt. And the more you can peel apart those voices, then that a heroic version of you comes out that that authentic self. So that's exactly what you're saying, right? Like I, I couldn't have found myself if I didn't completely test my my doubt, my fear, and overcome it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, dedicating to yeah, going on that own inner on that inner journey. That's gonna and you because you I think you've I think in life you have to find your own way. Like I really think that I have this poem that's called "I Was Born a Long Way from Home," and the the whole idea is that you're. We're all born far from where we are meant to be, from where our soul wants to be. And life is that sacred journey of finding our way back home. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're all born lost and confused into a family we didn't choose. And um, there's there's no roadmap that comes with life. So it's about looking within to find the way. And to dedicating yourself to that journey, which is the hero's journey, you know, every life, you know, we, we have to face the unknown and we're going to, we're going to face dragons and, you know, demons, and we're going to have to go through the darkness, all of us to come out on the other side as a more, you know, forged in the fire of that journey. Yeah. Um, to come back home as a more fully realized version of ourselves. Yeah. I want to end the conversation with this quote and unpack it a little bit because it reflects exactly what we're saying. This is by Robert Hughes. The greater the artist, the greater the doubt. Perfect confidence is granted to the less talented as a consolation prize. What, what I'm saying that is that it's exactly what we're saying, right? Like if I didn't have all the doubt, all the insecurity, yeah. I wouldn't have had the journey. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the hero's journey. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to find the qualities in myself I need to see to become me. Yeah. So how, how is that true? That quote ring to you? Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, you said you're a basketball player. I played basketball in high school as well. It reminds me of Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan was, you know, he really was the most confident player because he was that talented, but he was always looking for people who doubted him. In other words, he was always looking for that element of doubt to motivate him. So he would read the paper or listening, li- listen to the other team talking. And it's almost like he was like looking for any disrespect or any, any doubt in him. And he would take that doubt and he would internalize it and he would use it as fuel to get better. So he was always improving. He was always motivated to compete no matter what, no matter how many championships he won. He was always motivated by his own doubt or the doubt of other people. And he, and he let that fuel him. So I, I love, I love that idea. I think the shadow aspects of, of, of life, you know, the, the darkness and light, it's all contrast and the, and the darkness and the doubt and the shadow are what propel us to find the light, you know, and we wouldn't be motivated to do that if not for, for the doubt and for the shadow. Um, So I think it's a beautiful thing when you can transmute that that doubt into fuel to keep going. Yeah, it's one of the things I try and teach that, you know, the more, the darker the shadow, 
the brighter the light in the tunnel in the sense of like, you know, for all my deepest shit, my most fucked up things I've done, the qualities of me I've hated, the more I've dug and dug and dug, I've found the diamond, right? Like, for example, like Michael Jordan, you know, I, I, I'm not Michael Jordan, but in the sense that um, what used to destroy me now fuels me in, mm. in a way. So it's just like it, it, it creates the, I think... One thing you said earlier was like you were saying the ego is amazing. It's beautiful. If and I think it's true. If if tame, but what I taught learned is that the ego, my ego creates this discipline. Mm. Like my ego, I, I use it for discipline, right? Like it, if I didn't have the ego, I wouldn't be able to show up every day, every morning to do what I do. Absolutely. Is that, is that the same for you in some ways? Yeah, the ego is just your identity. You know, the you know you want to you want to love your ego. You know, you can have an underdeveloped ego, or you can have an overdeveloped ego. You really want to have that sweet spot because if you have an underdeveloped ego, you are going to be frozen by indecision, and you're not going to have enough self worth, and you know you're going to always be reactive to what other people are doing because you don't you can't stand in your own power. So the ego is that that identity that allows us to have self-worth and to stand in our own power and to be confident in who we are. That's very important. But if your ego is overdeveloped, then you're putting too much importance on who you are. And, you know, the um, it's kind of like the, the journey through life is to get a strong enough ego and then let it go. Um. So, because you don't want to, you don't want to pack that a bit. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. Well, I, I always think of, you know, people, people are always talking about identity and, um, I love this, what someone like Ram Dass, how, how he would talk about himself in life. And, 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 and he would, he would say that his goal was to become nobody, to become nobody, to have no identity. And, uh, that is the opposite of being so attached to your own identity, but it also needs to come from a place of inner security. So you can't become nobody in, in the Ram Dass sense where you're like dissolve the ego and you have, um, you know, you have a certain sovereignty over your own life and you can surrender to the unknown and let it go and be comfortable with the, just the flow of life. You can't really do that unless you have developed that ego to the point of having that inner security and that worth and that identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a, it's, it's a necessary stage of development. And I think when you're a child, you're developing that ego and, you know, as you are finding yourself, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20, you know, going to college, you're finding yourself, you're learning about yourself you're developing that ego, but the ego can be a trap. You don't want to get too attached to it and, and too caught up in that ego mind. Yeah. Um, so you do want to find it, but then you want to be able to let it go and, uh, and then eventually become no one. You have to build yourself up to have the courage to let go, to let go in the yeah. sense that like, uh, what I'm saying that is that, ego has created can create in you this um strength to tell yourself i can handle this right i I got this i can do this like i can handle what life throws at me Mm -hmm. that requires initiation journey to have that level of identity once you get there you can be like i can't actually handle this i can i can deal with the unknown and atrocities of life therefore i'm 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 gonna let go 
Someone said that the first half of life is learning to be an adult, and the second half of life is learning to be a child. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like that. Yeah, it's like developing that that identity, that sense of self, and then letting it go, and then returning to that playful nature of a child. Yeah, because you can get judged for being playful and, and feeling like a kid, right? Like in a, in this weird adult. Uh, capitalist world that people men only get validation for being more stern and right. serious so it takes courage and it's enough self-belief to be playful and and to be yourself but i just wanted to thank you so much for all the all the wisdom and experience you, you drew up in here especially i think it's a especially important conversation because of the way i see artists like uh, an earlier part of the conversation i see artists only focusing on the outcome of their art due to you know algorithms yeah. and not having that built up self-worth or, or level of mastery artistry. I think it's very pertinent for me, especially. So for me, thank you. Um, do you have anything to, to shout out? Where, where can people find you? Yeah. Well, my Instagram is uh, words are vibrations and that's where I you know, post most of my stuff. And then if you go to the link in my bio, I have a new book that's going to be out in February called the art of you, the essential guidebook for reclaiming your creativity. Uh, and that's available for pre-order now. Um, so you can just search for the art of you or go to my Instagram bio and um, go to the link. And there's a bunch of um, free goodies for people who pre-order the book. So pre-order now and you'll get access to all this um, content, extra of video courses and uh, and even a launch event. So pre-order now and um, hopefully I'll, I'll see you down the road. Amazing. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.